Well, I have Super Theo Bro Josh Dawes with me tonight. You have been upgraded uh, to Super Theo Bro. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty high status. Um, just because of your legendary tweet threads, um, I really appreciate you, Josh, joining this humble little podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. You are, you're officially a Theo bro now. You knew that already when we kind of talked through you joining me, you kind of said, you know, I'm already a Theo bro, so why not, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> are you comfortable with that label? Um, I think the, the ones throwing it at me uh, mean it as a derogatory, but uh, I'm fine with it, you know? Yeah, that's right. You wear it. It means that we love th reform theology, that Christ is king, that you have strong convictions about scripture. Um, at least that's the way I have seen it. Um, yeah. I tend to look at it through positive glasses. Yeah, guilty as charged. Okay. <laughs> you can find Josh on Twitter. You can read some of his epic tweet threads on at Josh Dawes. He's got an excellent podcast called The Great Awakening, where he's deconstructing wokeness one concept at a time. You've had some really cool interviews, Josh. You interviewed Neil Chenvey. Is that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. He was my it's, first interview, yeah. That was, that was I listened to the whole thing while I was shooting baskets, um, and it was an excellent interview. I, I, I highly recommend um, my folks going over to your podcast and searching Neil Shenvey. Um, really, really helpful stuff. He also talked to Kelly S. from a Time to Stand podcast. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah, she's a, a mom from California who's just been doing uh, really great work um, exposing a lot of the organizations and curriculum that's being kind of pumping woke ideology into our classrooms. Okay. Well, I'll have to go and listen to that. Josh, did you start a YouTube channel recently? I did, yeah. Um, my brother has been after me to get it, get get my podcast up on on there, so I've figured that out and have the video stuff going. So, like, can we see your face? Like, are you wearing a nice shirt in the videos, or is it just like the audio? No, it's uh, you can see my face and my all the gack behind me. It's a <laughs> it's a high quality production. Awesome way to go, brother. Yeah, you to do that. <laughs> um, I looked at your podcast. You have almost 70 ratings and reviews on there. Um, 4.6 really? out of 5 stars, Josh. Really? That's, that's not bad. Could be better. Um, <laughs> I'll have to look back and just see what's going on there, What's why people are only giving you 4.6 out of 5. Um, I looked at a user review. This is from ELS137. Um, they say, your podcast is smart and necessary. Josh is examining topics we need to hear and the truth about today. And this is serious. It's, she says, Josh, if you see this, we want to help spread this valuable info. Check your DMs. All right. Did you well, ever get a direct message from ELS 137? Oh, I will have to go back and check. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, after that, that one mega thread that I'm sure we'll talk about, I got a lot of DMs. <laughs> Did you have to lock it up? No, I, I kept it open. Uh, okay. There's some that, you know, they, they send the pictures and I'm just like, nope, not opening that. Delete. <laughs> <laughs> get get rid of those. Yeah. And I'm sure there were some really nice words in mm -hmm. there, too. Oh, um, yeah. 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 Twitter's a really nice place to um, 
to spread the gospel, share convictional biblical truth. Um, you almost never get bad replies. No, I get never. horrible replies all the time. Um, and thankfully, when you reach a certain level of followers, like they'll ask you, do you want us to stop sending you notifications for people that don't follow you? And I say, yes, please. <laughs> and it's actually made a big difference. Nice. I don't think I've seen that yet, but I'm, yeah. I'm just behind you. So maybe I'll get that soon. And see, again, the 4.6 out of five, that's no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> why do you think, Josh, <clears throat> on the Theo Bros podcast that I only have two ratings and zero reviews? What am I doing wrong? Um, man, uh, checking. I don't know. I haven't looked at it since I, I launched this. So I have no idea. I'm not sure what it, I, I think I asked on the first two episodes and then I, I forgot to ask people to go. Maybe uh, I'm not asking it. people enough. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you, you have nine or 10 episodes. Uh, I just recorded the eighth episode uh, this morning. I think maybe you have a lot more useful info in yours than I do. That could be, I'm not making any assumptions. Um, Two ratings. I, I could use a few more. No reviews. Um, yeah. Well, if you're listening, go rate this right now. Come on. Somewhere in the four or five range, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Josh, tell me about your podcast journey. Um, when did you start uh, The Great Awakening and why did you start it? So I started it last, uh, let's see, last August. August or June. I don't know. It was, yeah, it was, I think it was June and it was kind of a slow, slow go. It, it took me like, I think like six months to get out three episodes. And then, um, yeah, I just started getting some good feedback on those three episodes and felt like I need to start doing this. People are asking, when's the next episode? When's the next episode? And it, it just seemed like it was content that was helpful. And I got into this because, um, I, you know, I was concerned about seeing these woke concepts um, come into the church. And so I'm, you know, I was an early uh, Neil Shinvey adopter. I, I think I found him on, on Twitter when he had like 76 followers and he was the only guy writing about critical theory in, as it related to the church and um, just started sharing his stuff everywhere to, to anyone I'm trying to talk to this, these ideas, um, you know, explain these ideas to, and I would just get back, um, you know, uh, people would respond. I tried to listen, listen to Shinvi, but I don't know. It was just over my head. And so <laughs> I, <laughs> I felt like there was a need to kind of take some of this information and kind of distill it for more of your you know, average Joe in the, the pews, uh, you know, who doesn't have for me, Josh, to... just say it for me. <laughs> you know, for people. <laughs> and uh, I guess uh, I seem to have a knack for that because um, it's it's just kind of taken off. That's it's what I've been doing on Twitter and my, my threads seem to um, really kind of answer uh, questions that a lot of people are asking. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate your work so much. Not that Neil Shenvey is not a, a defender of the church, a defender of the gospel, because if you watch, look at his Twitter timeline or, or his his work, he certainly is that. Mm -hmm. But but Josh, you are you are very confrontational when it comes to the way that the 
critical race theory has 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 muddied the truths, the very clear truths of Scripture. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate your 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 podcast. They're not real long. Um, your interviews are longer, but I, I appreciate the twelve to fifteen minute range that really that really help people like me who. Really, uh, this is why I'm interviewing you, Josh, to to kind of help me understand the issues and what's really going on to kind of bring us some clarity. Your podcasts certainly do that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I, you know the the reason I do it is uh, my w- wife and I we lived in Los Angeles for almost eight years. Um, moved back to Georgia, I think five years ago, and you know being out there on the left coast seeing um, you kind of get a sneak preview of what's coming for the rest of the country. And so we, we saw uh, friends and you know, people we went to church with doing the whole deconstruction thing, like way before anyone was talking about it. And it all seemed to be that same um, trajectory that started with a concern for social justice and would kind of, you know, lead down the, the path to progressive Christianity for a time before, you know, many of them would just go on to complete you know, apostasy. And, you know, when we moved back to Georgia and just started seeing some of these ideas show up in otherwise conservative churches and church conferences and books, I just, I, you know, I was really burdened by it and started you know, waving the, the red flag and like, Hey, hold up. Cause I, I don't, it's not about just being confrontational for confrontational sake. There is, and there, you know, not that there's anything wrong with, you know, contending for the truth and, and all that. That's, that's great. But there are very real consequences to these ideas. Um, if they take root, if they, you know, if someone begins to see the world um, the way that critical th- you know, with a critical theory paradigm, hmm. it, it changes the way you see the world and you begin, it, it just begins to erode someone's faith. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be confrontational, but I want to rescue people from the abyss. I you know, come back. Don't, don't go down that path. It's not, it's not healthy for your, your, um, your spiritual walk. That's right. And I, I found you know, on Facebook very early on during the George Floyd situation in the riots as well. Um, I had, I saw so many of my friends immediately begin to adopt the narrative that was being shared by the media, shared by different organizations like Black Lives Matter. Um, friends that, that, yeah, that claimed and professed Christ. And the problem was there was really no one, no one stopping and saying hold on wait a minute this isn't biblical language here mm-hmm. no we you're already but by, by adopting the term race you you know there were pastors and, and close friends that immediately begin began adopting the presupposition that 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 there are multiple races you know as soon as you make that step mm-hmm. um, you've already jumped into you know secular thinking and thought and so very early on you know similar to you you know, I, I had this massive burden and I started writing posts on, on Facebook, not to be confrontational, but again, just to, to provide a biblical point of view, biblical language, biblical categories for what was happening and what happened to George Floyd. Um, and instead of instead of chalking it up to 
systemic racism, chalking it up to sin, what it really was. Um, and so, Josh, yeah, I appreciate your heart. I've, as I've followed you on Twitter, I've just been so encouraged by you. I, I can't get your name out enough. Um, really, I want to talk about real quick the tweet thread that started it all. Um, 19.4 thousand likes, Josh. 8,920 retweets. Um, yeah. <laughs> are you are, are you amazed by that? Yeah, it was it was. I mean, I've done so many threads that you just didn't do, you know, just kind of you get crickets back. And so you you can't plan it. I've, I've you, know, you work on threads that, oh, this one's going to do well, this this and nothing. And then it you can do a, a, you know, just a, you know, frivolous, <laughs> don't even think about it, throw something up and it gets you know, a bunch of retweets, but this one, this one, I think struck at the right time. And I think if it had been a week earlier, it wouldn't have done what it did. But the, the thread was basically just answering the question, why is the left so concerned or so insistent on talking to children about sexuality? And I think that people were just asking that question at that time because the, the, um, the bill in Florida had just blown up with um, <clears throat> DeSantis trying to, to ban that and all the controversy surra surrounding um, banning, you know, what they called the don't say gay bill. And um, I think that, you know, people were just, that kind of set off the alarms in, in parents around the country just like wait a minute why are they so upset about that why do they want to talk to my kids about this and um yeah i for whatever reason god used my uh my thread to kind of i think help explain that to people yeah i'll just read a little bit of it so that people can you know people can familiarize themselves but the left wants to create little revolutionaries and to do that, they need to sever the bond between students and parents they believe are raising their children to be hateful bigots. In order to sever the bond between parents and their children, the left is using a two-pronged approach. Now this, Josh, I think is what, what resonated with me and I think kind of opened, for, for lack of a better term, awakened so many um, critical race theory and radical gender ideology, properly known as queer theory, are not two unrelated sets of ideas. They are two parts of the same strategy. And then you go on to say, essentially critical race theory provides a, a negative identity um, for a, a certain group of students, particularly white students. And so in order to move from that negative identity, they need to adopt a positive identity, which is the queer theory side of it, um, to take on a uh, a non-normative sexual identity. And so that's how, am I saying that right? Am I, am I, am I tracking? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that's, that was your, that was your tweet thread about how that strategy has, how, how, why they want to hide queer theory and critical race theory in the classroom, keep it in the classroom so that it, that identity can be established before mm -hmm. the parents find out, which then will eventually lead the parents to either, I think you said, swing to one direction and over, you know, 
fight it way too much, which will then cause their kids to run into the arms of the leftist ideology. Or you said um, they won't really know how to handle it. And so they begin to adopt it for mm -hmm. the sake of peace within the household. And, yep. and I think that is that is very profound. Um, who do you read often, uh, Josh? Uh, really, the um, I know he gets a lot of flack um, and a lot of us Theo bros get a lot of flack from citing him, but James Lindsay is, is doing just really tremendous work mm -hmm. um, explaining a lot of these ideas and where they come from in academia. Um, and, you know, he kind of put me on to, you know, looking more closely at the, um, the work of Paolo Frieri, who was a, um, is the father of critical pedagogy. So the critical theory applied to education. Mm. And he was, um, his big insight was that education is inherently political. You're either teaching the knowledge and values of the dominant society, dominant culture, and therefore perpetuating um, oppression or you're helping the students to develop a critical consciousness to um, recognize the oppression around them, the oppression they're living in, and then uh, opening up, um, you know, basically becoming woke. And so he, his, his teaching is like the number one cited, uh, his, his book, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is the number one cited book I think in all of academic literature, like it's hugely influential in all of the, um, the major uh, schools of education teach his, his uh, philosophy of education now. So it, that it's, it's very well seated into our schools. And um, yeah, so that's, that's one thing that I've kind of informed the, uh, the thread. And the other thing was the uh, just reading about the Chinese cultural revolution and how, they would, um, it, it took place in the 60s and 70s. And basically, Chairman Mao in China took over the, the schools. And they would have these uh, struggle sessions where they would uh, take kids and they would kind of divide them up into two groups. You'd have the five black classes. These are things like uh, landlord or, you know, capitalist, uh, anti-revolutionaries. And then you have the five red classes. These would be like the workers, uh, revolutionaries, you know, a few others. And so what they would do in these struggle sessions is they would tear down the kids. They would, you know, have them denounce their family, have them, uh, you know, um, turn, you know, um, turn their parents in for things. And then they would provide opportunities for these kids once they've kind of torn them down. They provide opportunities for them to perform acts that would let them step into the red classes and be a celebrated, you know, part of the revolution. And that just, um, just studying that and understanding Paolo Freire's work, I began to, you know, it was just like clear, like, oh my gosh, that's how critical race theory is working together with, with queer theory and this gender ideology, because I was having trouble up until that point kind of it seemed like these were two things that were happening in our classrooms, but they were 
kind of unrelated. Like, yeah, I knew they were both kind of different variations of critical theory, but I, I wasn't seeing how they worked together in that way. And once that, you know, became clear, it was like, whoa, okay, this is, this is a pretty um, intentional, um, if not by the <laughs> humans in charge, I think definitely, you know, certainly by, you know, our enemy, um, who, you know, scripture says is a prowling lion seeking who he can de devour and he has schemes. And so those schemes are playing out in our world, in our classrooms. And, um, it, you know, we just got to be aware of it. Yeah. And I think that's where, where Christians get in trouble a little bit is this is a spiritual battle mm -hmm. and the, the answer to a spiritual battle is regeneration. It's the gospel. It's proclaiming the gospel as we are called. And, um, and that's what changes hearts. And, and obviously we should vote for laws that promote um, God's moral law in our world. Um, but we have to know that ultimately in order, in order to see change in our public schools, that churches need to be the church first and foremost. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing in, in, society in our schools and and in other arenas that you know, what i call the great awakening could be very discouraging you know once you kind of start to see the scale of it and all the different things it's kind of infiltrated but i choose to look at it as as encouraging i for years for for generations we you know were a very you know happy and you know we were happy to just kind of consume entertainment and you know we weren't thinking about bigger things but i think this great awakening that we're seeing is revealing that people are looking for meaning people are 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 recognizing that the things they've been trying to satisfy themselves with is not working and so they are we're in this period where people are um they're they're looking for a replacement religion you know they thought they could live without religion and just be um be happy watching tv and you know going to football games and stuff um but but we're we really are we're made with a you know a god's eyes hole in our heart and um it's we're looking for things to to fill it and i think as christians we can really step into this moment with um a sense of you know excitement that you know people are looking and we've got the answer let's 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 not shy away from the moment because we're afraid we might hurt our witness or whatever, but let's actually be there and explain why these ideologies are false and empty and offer a better alternative, which is the gospel. Yeah, I, I'm amazed how, how eerily similar to Catholicism, that wokeness, CRT, this ideology seems to be, you know, whites are continually in this state of purging, you know, in purgatory, they are, they are denouncing their white privilege as much as they can, but they will never fully be forgiven. There's mm -hmm. no grace in wokeness. And also, and there's, there's a lot of, a lot of um, similarity to Hinduism. You know, whites have centuries of bad karma that have been built up, mm -hmm. you know, um, from our ancestors that we have to, that we have to undo. And so there, yeah, I, I think it was Ligon Duncan that said at T4G that he celebrates pastors that are able to preach and you're unable to tell 
which side of the political line that they are on. And I'm really frightened by that thought and that mm -hmm. idea um, because, because Satan's kingdom attacks God's kingdom just about at every single point. Mm -hmm. Gender, sexuality, um, you know, our ethnicity, every, every point. And so pastors, it, it seems to me, pastors making any sort of moral convictional claim are going to end up entering into the field into the the culture war if you will mm -hmm. because like you said it, it seems like crt you know it seems like uh anti-racism those are religions those are our our false worldviews that we have to confront and we can't mm -hmm. be afraid of it yeah and it it's not you know they believe that everything is inherently political and so we're the only way to see it, for that to even be tenable is to just keep your mouth shut about everything. Mm -hmm. it, there, it's not even a workable, you know, it, it's not a workable strategy. Um, I, this morning I was recording uh, the next episode. I, did, I had a conversation with Abigail Dodds about um, just the very idea of culture war. Is that something that Christians should be engaged in? And uh, she had a great point that, uh, the culture, we live in the culture, it's all around us. You know, not every Christian is called to, you know, go into the public square to go, you know, battle for the faith on Facebook or Twitter or run for office or even be, you know, concerned with, you know, national matters. But the culture is going to intersect with your life, you know, at your, at your church, at your, you know, your classroom, at the things your kids are watching, um, you know, in, in so many different ways, our lives will intersect with the culture and we have to take a stand and that's going to make us culture warriors in a sense, you know, because we, we can't, we, we would be derelict in our duty to be confronted with the ways that this is, this is, um, you know, showing up in these different arenas. If we just kind of look the other way, if we keep our mouth shut, if we you know, we're more concerned about, you know, hurting our witness than, you know, kind of standing up for the truth. Yeah, we would be bad shepherds, you know, mm -hmm. especially as pastors, we would be allowing the wolves to sneak in and, and steal the sheep. And we just cannot do that. I, I watched a, a quick video clip and I, I want to hear your response. I, I can't play it for you, but I'll just kind of summarize what he said. David French hopped on to the Holy Post podcast. Okay, that's the the podcast with VeggieTales guy mm -hmm. and uh, a fellow named Sky Jethany or Jethani. Um, so I only watched the clip, but in it he claims evangelicals are using critical race theory as a sort of a boogeyman to excuse us from the subject of race. He says we have bulletproof armor against being challenged about race. When we're challenged about race, it disrupts our pre-existing worldview. So we use the critical race theory card. Mm -hmm. Do you do you agree with that? No, no. Um, it's super frustrating. This gets thrown out a lot, um, and it the only way it actually works is if you have adopted critical race theory that <laughs> that you have you know you have special insight that you know that the only reason you're you're 
concerned about critical theory is because you're actually trying to protect your power and it, you know it, it requires that argument requires a CRT analysis um, which is super frustrating and, and circular um, I think there's a problem with many of that uh, you know people like Vischer's persuasion where they're I don't know if they're just not listening um, to the very real concerns uh, people have. So I, I'm not sure I, I've stopped uh, really interacting with him because it, it's just yeah. super frustrating. Yeah, I'm not sure he's listening. I'm, you know, I, I'd hesitate to even say that he's regenerate. He has a lot to say against the church. I'm not afraid to, to discuss and, and listen really to concerns about racism within systems mm -hmm. in America. I'm not even sure. concerned about that. I do believe that there are, there are unequal weights within our system. But I, I think it was Kevin DeYoung that said it so brilliantly at T4G in the panel. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't look at it as a, as a, mo we can't look at it as a mono causal issue. It's right. not all rate, you know, every bad thing that happens to minorities, okay, or every disparity, I should say that happens to minorities can't be narrowed down simply to race because, <clears throat> because we know that that's that total depravity tells us there's a whole host of reasons why sinners sin. Mm -hmm. And it's not simply because they hate other skin colors. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I, I don't like what David French says here because it just the assumption is the typical average normal evangelical or pastor like myself is afraid to have those conversations. I'm not. But what I will not do is I will not use secular language or secular ideology or secular reasoning to talk about race or deal with race. I'll deal with it from a biblical point of view. And that's what I think, Josh, is so incredibly offensive. Mm -hmm. is that, and, and I think you can talk more on this, but just the, the idea that there is an objective truth is offensive in critical race theory. Am I right? Oh, certainly. Yeah. I, I mean, the very idea of objective truth is considered a tool of oppression, you know, so, you know, logical argumentation, um, you know, the, civil conversation, you know, anything that, you know, is kind of how we've, you know, been brought up to approach, uh, you know, civil disagreement and all that would be considered a tool of oppression under critical theory. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just not, it's not a biblical set of ideas. And, and I think, I think a lot of the objections to that, um, like like what we're hearing from David French and, and others are are kind of designed to, you know, I don't want to I don't want to speculate on their motivations, but I think it, they functionally work to um, change the subject. It's like no 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 if you if you really care about this, then you're also going to care about race and talk about what I want to talk about. And if we're not careful, we can be you know go overboard trying to prove that. No, 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 we're not racist. We actually care about that. We just want to talk about it in a different way. And then we're, we're off of 
warning about this other thing that is, you know, a big threat um, in our churches right now. And so I think, um, I think, you know, there's, there's ways to talk about race that, that don't, um, that don't rely on uh, critical race theory. And I, I think uh, Shai Lin's book is a phenomenal example. Like he doesn't even uh, mention the word uh, race or racism. Like he, hmm. you know, uses the biblical term of partiality and he talks about ethnic partiality, ethnic hatred, you know, ethnic pride. And then he, he explains like how this is, how, uh, you know, different, uh, the dominant race or the dominant ethnicity and the subdominant ethnicity, those sins show up in different ways, but they're, it's not, you're not immune from it just because you're in the minority group, you know, you still have that and it's, you know, it's contextual. So that's one thing that's, um, you know, critical theory would say that, you know, those in power always oppress those, you know, without power, but power is contextual. You can't just say this group of people doesn't have power because you can, you know, if you're a, a white uh, employee and you have a black boss, well, that black boss can oppress you. That, that black boss is in the position of power in that relationship. And so, you know, and then that black boss, when he goes home from work, can get pulled over by a racist white cop. And so in each of those situations, the power dynamics change. And it's just such a simplistic um almost, you know, cartoonish way of understanding oppression that is, is not at all what, you know, how we see that and understand that in scripture. Now you deal with this particular truth in your podcast. Um, I believe it's episode three. It's called the four tenets of modern critical theory. Would you mind just briefly explaining what those four tenets are? Okay, so the first tenet, and these are, I didn't come up with these, I borrowed these from Neil Shinvey, but I think they're incredibly helpful. Um, and it's important to know that you're not going to find these, you know, in a um, you know, critical theory by its very nature is hard to define. And it almost, you know, because of its reliance on postmodernism, it kind of resists uh, definition or meaning. It's intentionally yeah, it, vague. It, it naturally tears down boundaries, right? Like that's yeah. the goal. And so to, to create a boundary with a definition actually, it actually is, is counterproductive to critical race theory. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So these, these are four tenets that are, um, Shinvi has, has, um, kind of identified in all of the various critical theories that, you know, it's, if it's a critical theory, it's going to hold to these four things. So the first one, is that society can be divided into oppressors and oppressed groups along lines of race, gender, sexuality, religion, physical ability, um, you know, country of origin, anything that you can kind of find a binary divide in. Uh, you, there's a, a, a critical theory uh, that analyzes that. Fat studies, right? Fat, yep. that, which is Which is amazing to if you do any reading of it into vat studies just the idea that, that you're being oppressed if you're fat and yeah and diets are are oppressive right well any <laughs> doctors you know telling you to eat healthy is oppressive uh, according yeah. to fat studies yeah fat studies is really one of the more bonkers um <laughs> fields of critical theory 
the second is that dominant groups always oppress subdominant groups by imposing their norms, values, and ideas on society to justify their own interests. So it's this idea that um, if you are in power, you are oppressing. There is no concept of using your power and authority on behalf of others. Like critical race theory even went so far as to say, you know, anytime you look back through history and see white people doing something on behalf of black people, they only did that because it also served their interests. So it's, it's completely, there is no charity. There is no concern for others. It's always power dynamics and oppression. And seems a little conspiratorial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, the way they, they get there is through a, um, a very different uh, definition of oppression. So a biblical definition of oppression would be to use your power or authority in a cruel or unjust manner. So it's something like, you know, Egyptian slavery, American slavery, um, you know, lynching, that's using your power to cause harm uh, to another person. But critical theory expands that and to include any norms, values, uh, and the best example of this is um, in 2020, uh, summer of 2020, after the George Floyd stuff, the Smithsonian put up an infographic. I'm sure you probably saw that. Um, I think it's the aspects and assumptions of whiteness. Mm. And it lists all kinds of things that are considered oppress oppressive ideas of white culture. And this is things like, you know, punctuality and delayed gratification um, the Protestant work ethic, even the idea of, um, you know, a single God, you know, monotheism, they consider an oppressive idea of whiteness. So it's, um, yeah, it's whenever you're talking with someone who says, shouldn't we be concerned about oppression? You've got to stop right there. Like, okay, but what's your definition of oppression? So the third tenet of critical theory is that lived experience is an unquestionable source of knowledge, truth, and moral authority. So this is the idea that uh, if you're ever in a conversation with, with someone and you're talking about these issues and there's, there's some disagreement, someone might say, well, I just think as white men, we need to shut up about this. We need to, you know, not, um, we just shouldn't have an opinion. We need to listen and learn to the, ex you know, lived experience of, our blacks brothers and sisters and this would um this would be a not just any black brothers and sisters so someone like Vody bakum they would say would have internalized oppression like his thinking has been uh colonized by the oppressors and so his his experience is not valid his perspective is not you know unquestionable um so it's very <laughs> it's very suspicious that it's only one, one narrative that is actually considered uh, authentic. So it provides moral authority on, on the one hand where um, their voices you know, have to be deferred to. Like they can't, um, you can't question it. But it also provides, um, on the flip side, it provides kind of a, a moral absolution, like where um, you know, the you know, resentment or envy or anger is, uh, is justified. And so that is not, um, you can't call out those sins as well. 
So it, it, it really does a number on our whole, you know, understanding of sin and how it, it's uh, something that it, it, you know, affects all of us instead of, you know, this one group, you know, it's sinful when they have these feelings or they, they, you know, are holding on to this anger, but this other group is completely justified in doing that. So like critical theory really only understands oppression as sinful. Everything else is kind of like justified based on, you know, who is um, committing the sin. And this lived, the idea of lived experience is particularly, um, I think the thing that leads to people eroding their faith, because if we, if we have to kind of decolonize our, you know, our reading and, you know, look, uh, make sure our, our, our bookshelves are filled with like writers of color um, so that we can get their understand their lived experience, understand their perspective you know, eventually, if we're being logically consistent, you know, this gets applied to LGBT issues. And so it's mm-hmm. like, well, you know, if if the church has historically been oppressive to black people and our understanding of scripture is is a white understanding, well, then maybe our understanding of scripture is a straight understanding. And we need to listen to the lived experience of LGBT people and understand their interpretation of scripture. And so then it, once you start pulling that thread, it really starts to unravel somebody's faith if there's not really solid biblical guardrails. Yeah. And that, uh, that totally undercuts the sufficiency of scripture Mm -hmm. in that there's now there's this almost like this Gnostic power that certain oppressed groups have this knowledge that they have that us, you know, us whites or others, just don't and Mm -hmm. they can get a a a unique truth that we are unable to get and that's really problematic when we talk about the clarity perspicuity of scripture and hermeneutics itself yeah very much so that's the the, where they get the whole idea of um uh standpoint epistemology like it's it's a whole way of knowing truth that can only be accessed from the standpoint of the oppressed that's remarkable. We I actually got to listen to a a sermon recently from um, from a church. Um, the particular speaker was preaching on the resurrection narrative of John, and this particular preacher mentions how um, the whole basically the whole the whole narrative was cast as a uh, an exposition on oppression how. It was the woman, Mary, who initially found Jesus in, in the tomb and how she ran and went to the disciples, but the disciples didn't listen to her at first. They thought she was crazy. And this was this was a, a an example of patriarchy in the Bible and, and the problems of the systems of patriarchy within Scripture. And so the whole sermon was basically on, on tearing down oppression and it was based on the resurrection passage wow and this particular preacher absolutely you know at one point did you know sort of share the gospel and the purpose of the resurrection but the focal point of it was the oppression of the women and that that shocked me and just gave me um even more understanding of what what intersectionality actually does to biblical exposition yeah, I've I've even seen it um, applied so far as to teach that uh, that Jesus was uh, inherently 
um, oppressive in the way he, um, I think, uh, dealt with the Samaritan woman. And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs. And I've seen that taught that she, you know, by Jesus listening to the perspective of the oppressed, he was able to learn and grow past his, you know, inherited patriarchy and yeah, it, it, gets, it gets really messed up fast. <laughs> so that's the third tenet. Yep. The final tenet um, is that social justice must be achieved by dismantling systems of oppression through political and social activism. So that's really, it's the end goal of it all. They, they want to tear down the systems. It really gets back to the Marxist roots of cr- critical theory that it's about ushering in this, this um, society, this uh, system of a government that um, kind of enforces an equality um, of outcome. And so it's, it's very much, um, yeah, it's very much rooted in this, this um, understanding of justice that is not at all aligned with, with what we see in scripture. Yeah. All for the purpose of bringing in a utopia, you know, bringing in a, a kingdom that of course is not, brought in by Jesus himself, but as a man-made kingdom, um, which is so anti-Christ, <laughs> so anti-biblical, um, that's that's shocking and disheartening to see. It's almost like, it's almost a secular post-millennialism to yeah, some degree. it really is. It's like it's a perpetual revolution. Like, it's never achievable. And so the, it, as soon as one group gets... Um, you know, tears one group down, then suddenly they're on top. And then you apply all of the critical theory to that situation. And it's just this perpetual revolution, just a state of unrest, like forever. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's in stark contrast to the gospel, which offers peace and, you know, is, you know, rest in a sovereign God who is working together his plan. It's not up to us to, you know, fix everything and to make, um, you know, it's just, it's very prideful. It's, it's, it's hubris. It's, it's, you know, the tower of Babel all over again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we're not, again, we're not called to fix all the systems. We're called to preach the gospel and make disciples. And, and certainly that changes systems, Yep. but, um, we, I've seen that in unreached people groups that change entire systems of belief. Um, but sin is so prevalent that if you are trying to, if you're trying to fix all the social causes, you're just running around trying to put fires out constantly. And you're putting all those little fires out so much that you lose sight of what you're actually called to do. You know, the whole base of the reason for all the fires, which is sin. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just want to ask, you know, why do you think why do you think churches and pastors are so susceptible to falling into woke ideology? Yeah, I think, you know, charitably, I think um, pastors are very careful when it comes to the topic of race. I think there are you know, very real problems in our history that were not handled correctly. I think, um, you know, the you know, very founding of the Southern Baptist Convention is, you know, 
it, it's not good. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think people, you know, pastors are sensitive about that. And I think they're, but I think that sensitivity has been kind of weaponized against the church. And I think um, it really boils down to kind of a fear of man. I think we're afraid to be called names, even though, you know, we look in our heart and we know that, you know, my concern is not, you know, protecting power. My concern is that we're letting unbiblical ideas into scripture. And if that means people are going to call me a racist, well, then, you know, I've got to be okay with that. I know in my heart I'm not. And I know, um, you know, I know that this is something that needs to be confronted. And I think, you know, it's just a time for the church to really stand up and be bold and stop, you know, caring what the world thinks about us. Because Jesus told us the world is going to hate you. And I think, you know, the last several years that, that hostility has increased dramatically. And it's um, the illusion that, you know, if we're just nice enough, uh, if we're just um, winsome enough that they'll like us and, they, uh, they won't be, they won't think we're bad people. I think that that illusion is shattered and is, um, you know, we're in a different world now.